Well, good morning once again, church. Good morning. It's a joy to gather together as always to worship the Lord and now to hear from him in his word. And it's particularly special to do that today on Easter Sunday where we gather together to celebrate Jesus and to celebrate the fact that he rose from the dead. And if you are new here this morning or newer, this is your first time or one of your first times here, we do want to just say we're so glad you're here with us. Our hope and prayer this morning is that you feel welcomed and loved by our church family here, but even more importantly, that you feel welcomed and loved by our Savior. So we are glad you're here. And so church, it's Easter Sunday. And on Easter, we celebrate our Lord and specifically remember that he rose from the dead. This past Friday, if you were here with us, we looked more in detail at the cross. And now this Sunday, we gather to proclaim that it's true that he didn't remain dead. Instead, he rose again on Sunday morning. I do think it's important for us, even just at the outset of a message like this, before we look into John 10, to really emphasize that what we are talking about this morning, here this morning, the resurrection of Jesus, is real history. History. It's historical. It's documented. It happened in space and time. It took place on this planet. And I say that because whatever else you hear from the message or the service this morning, I want you to know that this is why we are here this morning. Because 2,000 years ago, around the year 27 AD, a man around 30 years old started teaching and doing amazing things in the area of Palestine. And he gained a pretty good following. And then he was crucified by the Romans on the weekend of the Jewish Passover and on Friday afternoon at 3 p.m. he died on a cross. But then, amazingly, on Sunday morning, he literally came back to life. And again, this actually happened and it changed everything. And it changes everything. It changed everything about history. We can see that. And it has changed everything for those of us here who are privileged to worship him. And I say that right at the outset on an Easter Sunday like this because let's be honest. During holidays like this, we can get so caught up in everything that's going on. It's especially true of Christmas in our culture, but it's also true of Easter. With all the family and food and the, and the planning and the celebration and the Easter bunny and the eggs and the traveling and all of that, people, even Christians, can forget the real foundations of what's really going on here. We can forget that we're really here today to celebrate and proclaim true factual history. And that's that 2,000 years ago, a man who claimed to be God rose himself up from the dead. Which brings us to our text here in John 10. So one of the reasons why John 10 is fitting for a morning like this, because as you might have noticed as it was read... Almost everything that was just read there in the scripture reading, except for the last few verses, is from the very mouth of Jesus himself. This is from Jesus himself. And that's helpful to us because, again, if we're here saying that we know and we're proclaiming that Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, then the questions we have about who he is will start to really pile up. Because that's a big deal, (laughs) 
That's a large historical claim that us Christians are making. And so in this text, it's helpful because in one text here in John, John 10, I think we get a really good insight onto who Jesus was, onto what he offered, and how we can make the bold claim that he really did die and rise again. And again, this is from Jesus' own lips, and he's the one whom we're claiming rose from the dead. And so now with that said, we're going to go through this passage this morning verse by verse. And as we do so, we're going to ask three questions. Three questions. And these three questions will be the outline of our time together here this morning. And we'll reveal the questions actually as we go. But that will be the outline. Three questions. But once again, the goal of each question is going to see who Jesus really is, what he says he'll do, and how we can say he really rose from the dead. So let's start with our first question. Our first question in John chapter 10 is going to be, what does Jesus offer? What does Jesus offer? And for this, we're going to read verses 7 through 11 of John 10. So again, I really do encourage you to follow along in your own Bibles, whether in the Bible in front of you, even on your phone, whatever it takes. But we're in John chapter 10, verses 7 through 11. We're going to read those now. The Bible says this. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So in answering the question, our first question, what does Jesus offer? We begin by seeing that he's using this analogy of sheep and shepherd. You probably noticed that. He assumes that his people are the sheep. Well, he is two things. First, he's the door. See that in verse 7. I am the door of the sheep. And then second, he says he's the good shepherd of the sheep. You see that in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. So he's the door and the good shepherd. And although shepherding is shepherding sheep is a less common occupation here today, especially in this area of Connecticut. It was one of the top occupations in Jesus' day, as you can imagine. And so although this might sound a little strange to us, the first thing for us to realize is that Jesus is using an analogy that his people would have really understood because he really wants them to get it and he wants us to get it too. And the image is pretty plain, even for us who don't see sheep and shepherds every single day. A sheep is an animal that if it doesn't have a good shepherd, on its own it'll wander and get confused and get easily hurt and lost. While the shepherd is then the one who has the responsibility to watch the sheep and care for the sheep and guide the sheep and protect the sheep. And then the door of the sheep was the gate, the way into where the shepherd would take care of his sheep. So that's the overarching picture from Jesus here to start. His people are the sheep, and he's not only the good shepherd, but he's the door into where he watches the sheep. Which finally brings us back to our question. So that's the analogy, but then where where do we fit in? What does that do with me? Or, Or what does Jesus offer the sheep when he says that he's the door and the good shepherd. And for this, we're going to read again verses 9 and 10, because just in these two verses, you get a good summary of what Jesus offers. So let's read them one more time, verses 9 and 10. I am the door. 
If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So you can see three things there. We can summarize the question, what does Jesus offer with these three things? First, if anyone enters by me, he will first be saved. See that in verse 9. That's the first thing. Then second, Jesus says he will go in and out and find pasture. That's the second thing. And then third, he says that he will have life and have it abundantly. So what's Jesus offering his people? To be saved, to go in and out and find pasture, and to have abundant life. And sermons could be spent on each one of those things. But for the sake of our time this morning, I just do want you to know that this is a good, easy summary of what Jesus offers his people. What Jesus offers anybody who will trust in him. First, he offers to be saved or salvation. And that word there just can also be translated as rescue or deliverance. And and all those words show that Jesus believes that his people need deliverance from something. And here's where Jesus is honest, and the Bible is honest, and we really should be honest too. We know we need deliverance. We need some sort of rescue. And what we need deliverance from is our our messed upness, the fact that something isn't right with us. That things clearly aren't the way that they're supposed to be. That if we're honest, we're selfish and, and twisted and we don't measure up. Or as the Bible calls it, we miss the mark. And that's just all that the word sin means. And so the saving, the rescue, the deliverance that Jesus offers is precisely to deal with that. And so the first thing Jesus offers to be saved unabashedly from him deals with something negative in us, his sheep. Something negative that he says that we need to be delivered from. And again, sometimes this is the hardest part for people when they come to Jesus. But let's be honest, this is actually quite helpful. Because Jesus isn't some just clever teacher who's trying to pep us up to believe in ourselves. Because that doesn't work. Instead, he's straightforward. He's honest. There's something not right about us. And first and foremost, before anything else, he has come to lovingly deal with that. To deliver us. To save us. To help us. Which leads to the second thing Jesus offers. And again, that's in verse 9. Quote, he will be saved and then he will go in and out and find pasture. So now think of the picture again. The the sheep are delivered and saved from this messed upness. And now what do they get? They continually go in and out and find pasture. They're now able to, to live and continually find sustenance and find what they need. And that's the second thing Jesus offers. He doesn't just deal with the negative aspect of what's not right with us. But he offers his sheep true sustenance, true satisfaction. What, what the sheep really want, what the sheep were really made for. And this aspect of Christianity and Christ needs to be emphasized too because maybe you're here this morning on an Easter Sunday like this and you think that all that Christianity has to offer or mainly Christianity has to offer is just to be saved or to not go to hell. And of, of course, that's part of what Jesus offers here, but notice that's not what he emphasizes here. Yes, that is the first thing, but the sheep are saved for a purpose. 
for a goal. And the goal then, after being saved, is then to go in and out and find pasture. Which leads to the third and final thing Jesus offers. And that's at the end of verse 10. Famously, I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And I think here, this is Jesus summarizing his first two points from verse 9. He summarizes it as the Bible does elsewhere with this idea of life. True life. Being saved and going in and out and finding pasture, living how you were meant to be, is summed up in the word life. And here's why this is helpful. All the way from the very first few pages of the Bible, then throughout the whole Bible, we get this idea of life and death. And as we see, as we go throughout the Bible, these do not just represent the state of being alive and the state of not being alive. Instead, it's way bigger than that. Instead, true life is its vitality. It's, it's living as you were supposed to be. It's being alive in a relationship with the living God and then living as you were meant to live in a beautiful way in his world. That's true life throughout the whole Bible. While death, on the other hand, isn't just not being alive. Instead, death is the opposite. It's being separated from that true life. Instead of having this beautiful relationship with God and being connected with him in your true purpose, death in the Bible represents this confusion, this regret, this living in a state of selfishness and ultimately being separated from the God of life. So when Jesus says in verse 10, I come that they may have life, he's not just talking about keeping his people alive. He's talking about them having true vitality, true liveliness, living as they were meant to. And that, by the way, is when the, why, when the Bible talks about us being gifted the blessing of eternal life, the emphasis really should fall on the life. Because often, even when we in Christians talk about eternal life, we emphasize the fact that it's never-ending which is fine and good, but in reality, the most beautiful part of eternal life is that it's eternal life. It's having this true vitality and liveliness in a relationship with your God, with Jesus, living on this earth in the way you were meant to forever. That's eternal life. So that's a summary of what Jesus offers. He's the good shepherd and the door, also that his people may be saved, he may go in and out and find pasture, and they may have true, abundant life. But now before we move on to our second question, I do want to stop here and just point out the other thing Jesus talks about in this section that we haven't touched on yet. Because it really applies to all of us. And it's him, you might have noticed, talking about these other guides. These fake shepherds, if you will, that we need to be careful of. And for this, again, look at verses 8 and 10. We haven't really talked about these. Verse 8, Jesus says, All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. Then verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So in brief, Jesus is saying that he offers rescue and true life. He really does. But he also points out that he's not the only one who's trying to guide and influence these sheep. Instead, there are, quote, thieves and robbers in verse 8. In verse 10, there's the thief that comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Now, without going into too much detail, I think we all get Jesus' point. 
There are other offers on the table for guides in this world. But Jesus' point is that they're thieves and robbers. They, they don't provide the solution to that messed upness that we all recognize. And they don't provide that true life that we're all looking for. Instead, they're just using you. That's Jesus' point in the text. And unfortunately, a lot of us know this about the world. It's a, it's a cruel place a lot. People and businesses are out for themselves, for their own bottom line. And if our ultimate hope is put into any of those things, we'll see what Jesus says here to be true, that they don't really care about us. Instead, they have their own agendas and we're just being used. And so Jesus is saying he's offering something genuinely different. He's the door, the good shepherd, and he alone gives that deliverance we need. And he alone gives what we're really looking for, true overflowing life. This leads us now to our second question. So we've asked, what does Jesus offer? And now we're going to turn and we're going to ask, what will he do to secure what he offers? What will he do to secure what he offers? Because it's one thing to to offer something, but what are you going to do, Jesus, to make sure that you actually can offer it? And for this, we're going to pick up again in verse 11, and we're going to read all the way through verse 16. So again, I encourage you to follow along in your Bible. John 10, 11 through 16. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So Jesus, again, there you see it, emphasizes these other guides that we just talked about. He offers salvation and true life. But again, there are fake guides who he says, will flee as soon as it becomes hurtful to them, verse 12, who, quote, care nothing for the sheep, in verse 13. But in contrast, what does Jesus do? Well, he's the door. He's the good shepherd who cares for his sheep. But the emphasis we see here, and you probably saw it, is now he's saying he's also the one who's going to die for his sheep. He's going to die for his sheep. You see that twice, verse 11 and verse 15. And that really is the ultimate answer to our second question. What will he do to secure what he offers? He says that he as the good shepherd isn't just going to guide his sheep. He's also going to be the one who dies for his sheep. And to be clear, what's his goal in doing this? Look again at verse 16. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So it's sheep who are not of this fold, meaning he has people that are from all over the world, not just the Jews that he's talking to in this context. And he promises that he's going to bring all of them. They're going to be his sheep. There'll be one flock and one shepherd, and he's going to do all that by dying for them. And this truly is the good news, the gospel of Jesus in a nutshell. Everything we've talked about so far in the message. And if you're a Christian here, you might know this. And even if you're not a Christian, you've probably heard this. The gospel, 
The good news of Jesus in a nutshell is that he came and he lived a perfect life and then he died and rose all so that his people could be forgiven and be saved and also so that his people could have true life now and forever. And to be clear, when Jesus uses that phrase that he dies for his sheep, for his sheep, we go elsewhere in the Bible to prove this, but this means that he's dying in their place. In their place. Taking upon himself what his people deserve. And this is why the sheep, God's people, needed this to happen. Jesus in dying for his sheep is not just giving them a good example of love. Nor is he just doing something to make people feel valuable. Instead he dies to secure what he offers. So that his people's sins which were put on him could then be forgiven and they could be saved. And so that now that they've been saved because he died for their sins, now they have a right relationship with God and they have true life. And so that is the answer to our second question. What will he do to secure what he offers? The gospel's clear that he will die for his sheep in order to save them, in order to give them true life. And again, Contrast this with what the world offers because you notice Jesus does that again here in this section. Contrast this with all the quote thieves and robbers that, that if we're honest all of us are tempted to turn back to almost every single day. With the thieves and robbers we're just being used. We're just another part of the survival of the fittest, the, the do whatever makes you feel good and then try to live a decent life and then die sort of system. That's the one offer from the world for our guide. But on the other hand, here we see the opposite. Here we see what we were really made for in our bones to cling to. And that's the sacrificial dying for you, personal care and love and guidance. And that's what Jesus alone provides. Which finally brings us to our third question, our third question. So we've asked, what does Jesus offer? We asked, what will he do to secure what he offers? But now we turn to perhaps the best question of all, especially for us this Easter morning. And if the first two were what questions, what does he offer, what will he do? This is a how question. And it's this. So so we know what he offers, and we know what he says he intends to do to secure it. But now our question is, how can he do what he says he's going to do? How can he do it? Because it's one thing to to say you're going to die to secure all this, but it's another thing to actually be able to do it. And, And before you think the answer is quite simple, stick with me. Think of everything that Jesus has said so far. He said that he has come, this is from his own words, for a huge lasting reason. He's come as the door so that his people can not only be delivered, but can keep going in and out and having life. And then he said he's come to be the good shepherd, the shepherd who continually loves and guides his people, the one who cares for his people, unlike the thieves and robbers. And he says he's going to do all that by dying. So then the question becomes, but then Jesus, if you secure this by dying, how in the world then can you do what you're intending to do? Because think of it this way, it's one thing to say, I'm going to go die for someone. 
You may be able to control that to a degree, but then you can't say, and after dying for them, I'm going to do do this and that for them. I'm then going to be their shepherd, and I'm going to guide them forever. You can't do that. Why? Because you'd be dead. (laughs) And the same goes for Jesus here. It's one thing to say that somehow, in some way, he'll die for his sheep. That may be well and good. But how in the world can he then say that he's going to be their good shepherd, guiding them in and out and finding pasture, giving them abundant life? How can he say that if he needs to die for that to happen? Which leads us to our most important verses in our text. And honestly, these are some of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. This is John 10, verses 17 and 18. Let's read them now. I encourage you to look down your Bibles. Jesus says this. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again, this charge I've received from my Father. So perhaps you can see why these these sentences are some of the most striking things that Jesus ever said. Let's make sure we get what he's saying. He says twice in those two verses, one in each verse, that he's going to lay down his life. I mean, and he's bold about that. You probably say it. He's going to lay down his life. And he's so firm about it. In verse 18, he says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. So Jesus is saying, I lay down my life. I do it. And to be clear, no one's going to take it from me. Not the Romans, not the Jews, not Herod, not Pontius Pilate. No one's going to take my life from me. I'm going to lay it down of my own accord. And that in itself is somewhat shocking because he's saying that he, not, not these mobs that are about to come, not these huge state forces, but he is totally in control of his upcoming death. But that pales into comparison to what also he says twice here. Once in each of these verses. Because again, it's one thing to say, I laid down my life. But it's a whole other ball game to say, and I will take it up again. But see for yourself, verse 17. I laid down my life that I may take it up again. Verse 18, no one takes it from me. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Now that's shocking. Because let's be clear what this man is saying. He's saying, I will lay down my life. Okay, that makes sense. You, You can go ahead and lay down your life, Jesus. But then he's also saying that once I'm dead, I then am going to take it back up again. I mean, he's, he's making himself the subject of the verb. <laughs> he's saying that although he is going to die and he's going to be dead, then he is going to raise himself back up again. Now, now, that's crazy, unless it's true. And it's times like this where C.S. Lewis's famous Lord, lunatic, and liar distinction, maybe you've heard of that, is extremely helpful. Because in brief, C.S. Lewis points out that when we come to the Jesus of history, the Jesus you're hearing from in John chapter 10, so many people just want to say and brush it off and just say that he's a good guy and a good teacher. But Lewis's point is that Jesus hasn't left that option open to us. And what we just read is a great example because think of this. Either 
Jesus here is a liar. And he's lying. And he knows that he could die, but he knows he can't really raise himself back up again. Or, Jesus here is a lunatic. And he's crazy. And he thinks that he can raise himself back up again, but in reality, that's impossible. Or there's a third option. And he's saying this here because he actually knows that he can do what he says he's going to do. And that's because this man is truly God. He's truly the Lord. The Lord of life and breath and everything. And being so, he can lay down his life of his own accord. And then after he dies, he truly can raise himself back up again. So that's the answer to our last question. How can he do what he says he's going to do? Well, he can do it because of who he is. Jesus can not only lay down his life, but he can literally take it back up again. If that's the case, then he's God. And if that's the case, then of course he can die for his sheep, and of course he can rise again to be their forever good shepherd, loving them, caring for them, guiding them in and out of pasture, and giving them eternal life. So now we've answered our three questions. What does Jesus offer? He offers us to be saved and to find this true life, this life we were made for. Then we've asked, what will he do to secure what he offers? And we saw him saying, I'm going to die for my sheep. And then we just asked, well, then how can he do this? How can he say he's going to die for a sheep and then be the forever good shepherd? And it's because of what he said clearly in verses 17 and 18. I lay down my life for my sheep and I will take it up again. So that's our text. Jesus offered that for his sheep. He said he'd die for his sheep. Then he said he'd even rise again. Those are Jesus' words that you saw in John chapter 10. And guess what? He did it. He actually did it. And that's why we're here on this Easter morning. Jesus willingly died for his sheep so they could be forgiven and find true life, but that's not it. Jesus then also raised himself back up again. He was dead, but then he raised himself back up from the dead. And now he does have his sheep. He has people from all over the world, as he said he would. People who listen to him, who love him, who love following him, who love his guidance, who live for his grand purpose. Why? All because the good shepherd died for his sheep and he rose again for them as he said he would. Which finally brings us to our final three verses of our text. And they're really fitting for us here this morning and they're how we'll close so just remember the context. Verses 17 and 18, Jesus has just made these bold statements that he's going to die and raise himself back up again, which leads to the crowd's reaction in verses 19 through 21. And I'm sure it's exactly similar to the reaction of this room even here this morning. So let's read these verses, verses 19 through 21. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. It's insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And so back then and still today, this, this distinction remains. People hear what we're talking about this, here, this morning. You're hearing it. 
that he dies for his sheep, that he rises again, this claim, and there's only two options. The first is skeptical. See that in verse 20. He has a demon. He's insane. Why listen to him? And this response, honestly, is somewhat understandable. I mean, who in the world can claim that he's going to die and then raise himself back up again? But then there's a second response. It's in verse 21. So these people understand, right, it might sound crazy at first, but they say, these are not the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? (laughs) Meaning, yes, this may sound crazy, but the point is, but, but look at what he's doing. He's making blind people see again. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Can can a crazy person make the blind man see? And for us this morning, as we're talking about the resurrection that happened 2,000 years ago, the same logic of these verses remains. Yes, on the face of it, it may honestly sound strange at first. I mean, who is this man who said that he'd die and raise himself back up again? But then we face the facts and we see it that he actually did it. He did it. He did die this awful death like he said he would in the place of his people and then he did rise and now he does have people from all over the world as he said he would. Which brings us full circle to where we even began this message and that's again by emphasizing why we're here this morning. That's because Jesus of Nazareth, our Savior, our God, came died and came back to life as he said he would. And so if you're here this morning and you all already are, by God's grace, a a genuinely Jesus-trusting Christian, take heart. Because this means that your faith is not some random leap in the dark. It isn't something that you just inherited from your family or your neighbor, your co-worker, whoever shared the gospel with you. Instead, we worship a historical, risen, alive, right now, Jesus. This also applies to you if you're here this morning and you, and you don't trust in Jesus. Or, or if you're honest, you'd admit that Christianity has kind of just been something you do because your family does it. Or, or if you're honestly just skeptical about these claims. Or if you just say that this quote isn't for you. If any of that's the case, then again, we are glad you hear, you're here. But I do really encourage you to analyze all that we saw from Jesus here this morning. And specifically, look into the resurrection. Because although there's a lot of good talk and good discussion about good questions like the existence of God and the problem of evil, and there's great books and stuff on that, like I, I recommend C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. You can go read that. Or, or more modern one would be like Tim Keller's The Reason for God. There are good books that talk about why God exists and the problem of evil and all of that. And although that could be good, if you're here this morning and, and you're a skeptic, you don't trust in Jesus, if you can boil, we can boil it down to the one thing, if you want to boil it down to the one thing that proves that all this is true, that Christianity isn't just some religious mumbo-jumbo and this, that this really applies to you, it is the physical, historical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Where around the year 30 AD, he was crucified on Friday and then on Sunday morning, he rose himself back up again because if he did that, as he said he would, and as history proves that he did, then that changes everything. It explains why Christianity spread so fast. 
because he revealed himself to hundreds of people after he rose from the dead. It explains why every single one of his disciples was willing to die for him because they really saw him dead and then alive. And it explains the history of the church and why we're here this morning, all because Jesus really is who he says he is. He offers his deliverance and true life. He dies for his people all over the world to secure that for them. And now he really is alive and reigns as their good, loving Savior and guide, all because he died and he really rose on a Sunday about 2,000 years ago. So again, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you've never taken this seriously at all, I'm glad for whatever reason brought you here this morning. We're so glad you're here, but I really do encourage you, even this morning, to maybe take this seriously for the first time. Because Jesus is alive. He is the good shepherd. He is the door. And he'd love for you, even for the first time, to come in, to trust him, to find in him that deliverance you're looking for and that true life. And finally, for those of us who are Christians here, let's marvel this Easter at who our Jesus is. Let's, let's be thankful and marvel at what he did for us, at how he claimed that he would die and rise again, and, that, and then at how he actually did it. He is worthy, brothers and sisters, of our adoration now and forever. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray.